welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Christopher Tomlins, Elizabeth Jocelyn Bolt, Professor of Law at UC Berkeley School of Law. We will discuss his new book, In the Matter of Nat Turner, A Speculative History, which is published by Princeton University Press. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you, Brian. It's good to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. No, I'm I'm really excited about this because when I saw this book come up, and I can't remember exactly where I saw it, but I, as soon as I saw the description, I was like, wow, that looks really great. And when I got it and I had a chance to actually read it, I was pleasantly surprised to find that it was even better than I expected it to be. And just really a fascinating, creative and provocative book. So congratulations on this work. Um, I really couldn't recommend it more highly. Thank you very much indeed. It's good to hear. Um, well, so I, I will confess that I kind of had an interest in Nat Turner already um, and so knew a little bit of background about the Nat, Nat Turner and the Nat Turner Rebellion and had read some other books and articles about the subject. But I suspect some listeners might not really know all that much about who he was and and what happened. So I, I wonder, by way of kind of introducing them, you could talk a little bit about the story of Nat Turner and the Nat Turner Rebellion and just kind of let people know the basics of what took place. Sure, I'd be delighted. Uh, Nat Turner was a Virginia slave. Um, he was born and grew up uh, as a slave in Southampton County, Virginia. Um, he was born in 1800. And uh, in 1831, August of 1831, when Turner was 30 years old, uh, he, together with a small group of other slaves, uh, launched a uh, an attack on uh, a succession of farm households uh, in St. Luke's Parish, Southampton County. This is the western area of the county. They began from a small hamlet called Cross Keys and proceeded quite methodically uh, to uh, visit and attack uh, some 15 or 16 Farm households over the period of 12 hours on the 21st, uh, the 22nd of August, um, 1831. Um, they began as just uh, approximately a half a dozen people, and as they visited household after household, they uh, recruited uh, slaves from those households and um, killed the white uh, family members uh, whom they discovered in those houses, mostly women and children. So after about 12 to 15 hours, they had uh, killed around, they killed 55 uh, whites, um, and they had proceeded quite methodically um, from household to household, um, as a uh, 
governed really by a logic of uh, familiarity. That, that is, the, 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 the households they attacked were households that uh, members of the group knew. Um, by mid-afternoon that day, they decided, Turner decided, that it was time to move um, uh, eastward toward the town of Jerusalem, which was the county seat of Southampton County. It's now known as Cortland rather than Jerusalem. Um, they ran into uh, white militia um, and parties of armed inhabitants, the first opposition, the first real opposition they had met. Um, the next several hours were consumed by a series of small skirmishes between Turner's group and these groups of armed inhabitants and militia. Um, they spent that night um, on a local plantation, camp on a local plantation. Um, numbers of the rebels had uh, absconded from the group by this point. Uh, they began the next morning by attempting to recruit more uh, from another plantation. They were were repulsed by the white inhabitants. And at that point, their rebellion basically fell to pieces. Um, the remaining members um, uh, fled back toward cross keys from where most of them had originally come. Turner became separated from all but a couple of uh, other rebels, and eventually those two also disappeared. Uh, most of the group by that point had either been killed or captured. Uh, Turner himself uh, uh, avoided capture for the next two months, uh, stayed in the area, uh, was eventually uh, apprehended um, uh, October 31st, uh, he was uh, imprisoned, uh, awaiting trial. He was tried on the 5th of November, sentenced to hang, and he was executed on the 11th. Um, the reason, really, that the Turner Rebellion became uh, notorious is that it, it's, it's really um, uh, a... There just aren't that many slave uprisings in American history. Very few, in fact. Uh, and Turner's uh, was distinctive because it was uh, quite, you know, extraordinarily bloody by the standards of the time, by the scale of the numbers of people involved. So that's really, that's why Nat Turner became a notorious figure in first in southern antebellum history and then more generally in uh, in American history. Well, so, I mean, one thing that I think really also helped kind of make the Nat Turner Rebellion unique was the kind of con contemporary documentation of what took place, but also importantly, at least to some degree, of Nat Turner's own thoughts about what took place, which seems really quite unusual as well. So, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of how that came to pass. Sure. Um, the reason 
Uh, one of the reasons that the uh, rebellion became uh, widely known quite quickly is that um, a, a Southampton County attorney uh, named Thomas Ruffin Gray um, uh, had taken uh, a considerable interest in the events of the rebellion as they unfolded and in studying them. And then when Turner was captured, uh, Gray contrived to um, interview, to interview him, to, to, to engage in an extended conversation with him over a period of three days while he was awaiting trial in jail. And uh, from this conversation, or from Turner's narrative of both the events of the rebellion and uh, the events of his own life prior to the rebellion, Turner, um, excuse me, uh, Thomas Ruffin Gray um, uh, assembled a narrative account, which he published uh, as a pamphlet. Um, and distributed really uh, pretty widely, uh, all told uh, some 50,000 copies of this pamphlet um, were circulated. Um, so that pamphlet really, which is quite unique in terms of uh, the documentation uh, at more or less first hand of a slave revolt, and more particularly, and in a sense more extraordinarily, uh, a, a narrative autobiography um, uh, delivered by uh, the leader of the revolt in question. Um, all of this makes a, a really quite extraordinary and unique accounting of um, this particular man and, and his and his times, his activities. Um, Gray, uh, Gray's pamphlet, of course, is, is um, uh, compromised in the way, you know, by by the nature of, of its of its provenance. Uh, here we have a, a an account of a slave revolt as. Um, told to and circulated by um, a white amanuensis. Uh, so the, the use of the pamphlet by historians uh, has been a matter always of considerable, you know, assert, you know it's controversial. Uh, it is, uh, uh, has been thought to be uh, either a, you know, a faithful account, or on the other hand, something that is largely uh, uh, constructed, even uh, made up by the by the white attorney. Um, it is the central. It is one of the central texts on which I rely in my book, but I don't rely on it uh, uncritically. Um, I examine it. Very carefully for for the evidence that it can it can give us. Well, so many other people have reflected on this pamphlet, the Confessions 
of Nat Turner, um, you know, in order to kind of try to reconstruct who Nat Turner was and what he thought notoriously, but not uniquely William Styron, uh, you know, and many others as well. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think that they got wrong or what they missed and how you tried to use the material in the pamphlet differently in order to capture a different perspective on on Nat Turner's uh, own thought. Right. Um, if we talk about William Styron first and briefly, um, Styron is well known. He's probably probably the, the the person most responsible for the creation of a modern narrative of Nat Turner, and that is through his novel, uh, The Confessions of Nat Turner. Um, uh, he took his title verbatim from the title of the pamphlet published by Thomas Ruffin Gray, uh, also called The Confessions of Nat Turner. Um, I have... Uh, I came to Matt Turner originally reading Spiron's novel. That's what uh, gave me my initial interest in him. This is many, many years ago before I'd ever thought of writing about him myself. Um, but when I returned to Spiron's account of his novel, how he came to write his novel, what was uh, so clear is that uh, Spiron, although he bases his novel, he, he uses... Uh, Gray's pamphlet, in many ways, as his as his uh, as the spine of his um, his own novel. Um, Styron uh, did not want to write about the person he found in Gray's pamphlet. He says so repeatedly as he explains the provenance of his novel. He says uh, the, the person that he encountered in Gray's pamphlet he characterized as a as a uh, as a psychotic, uh, a, a religious fanatic, a maniac. Uh, he uses these terms interchangeably and repeatedly, uh, repeatedly, you know, fanatic, maniac, uh, religious madman, religious fanatic, uh, psychopath, and so forth. Um, and so Styron, uh, wrote about, in order to write about Matt Turner, Styron kind of invented a new Matt Turner of his own devising, and he wrote about that person instead. Um, my approach to the pamphlet is somewhat different. I uh, want to take the person, the persona, the mentality that one encounters in the pamphlet as literally as possible. Um, I offer an analysis of the construction of the pamphlet, how it came itself to be put together, um, to show how it can be it can be trusted. Um, and uh, I do this very carefully uh, as a matter of, in effect, literary theory or literary criticism, um, and. What is unique to me about the pamphlet is the first half of the narrative that it offers, which uh, is Turner's account of himself from 
his uh, uh, infancy until the moment of the rebellion. Uh, it is a story that Styron, that, uh, that uh, Thomas Ruffin Gray uh, could have had no prior knowledge of. Um, the narrative of the rebellion, in contrast, is a narrative of an event that, as I already said, Gray had studied um, carefully himself, of which he knew a great deal. Um, so, analyzing the pamphlet, analyzing the way it is written, the way it is put together, the down to questions of the grammar, the syntax, the sentence construction, one can see that these two elements, Turner's account of himself and the account of the rebellion, are actually two very different texts, two very different kinds of texts. Um, the first is uh, clumsy, jumbled, uh, poor syntax, poor grammar, poor sentence construction. In other words, it uh, has the character of um, notes taken during a, you know, in the moment of a conversation, uh, and then roughly transcribed and hastily transcribed. The second half of the pamphlet, which is the account of the rebellion, which is the part that Gray is most interested in, because that's where his own sense of his own contribution uh, as a narrator lies, is, is carefully written, it is carefully constructed in complete sentences, good grammar, proper punctuation, good syntax, and so forth. That is, uh, in other words, it is a carefully written um, text. Um, I think that the contrast between these two texts allows one to uh, have some confidence that the first half, the rough half, uh, is indeed um, based on the conversation, the moment of conversation that Gray had with Turner in his jail cell. And the story that that uh, first half of the pamphlet tells is of a, um, a person, uh, and a, a, a religious persona, a religious mentality of a particular kind, of a particular evangelical Christian kind. Um, and it is the narrative of a dawning self-awareness as a person of profound faith, of a task that is being uh, required of that person by God. Uh, the way Tanner constructs the narrative of himself, he constructs a, uh, an account of his own coming to be as a believing person, then of a sense of discipleship, of mission, uh, and finally, uh, an awareness of himself as, um, as the Redeemer, as the Redeemer returns. So the, the pamphlet turns ultimately the first half of the pamphlet turns ultimately into an account of someone who is 
the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. I was wondering, because one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about that section of the book was this sort of really detailed and methodical analysis of Turner's own theology and kind of theological kind of conclusions that he drew from his religious experience. And I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that analysis and how you think that it may have inspired his decision to take the actions that he did. Right. Um, It's often the case, you know, that, you know, historians like most scholars will probably consider themselves, you know, secular thinkers. Um, this is not to say that historians don't write about religion or indeed religious belief, um, but they they write about religion and religious belief as a phenomenon to be observed. Um, I try in the pamphlet in in I try in my book to take very very seriously Turner's. Um, capacity and expression of faith. And I do so, and I take his religious faith, you know, I, 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 I take him at his word. Um, I don't try to uh, treat his religious ideation as a sort of code for something else. Uh, it is you know, the cliche is it is what it is. I mean, the, it is it is religious faith that is being expressed uh, there. Um, historians also, I think, as as secular people, when confronted by religious ideation in the form of biblical citation, scriptural uh, citation, and so forth. We'll think of the personage um, who is um, uh, spinning uh, biblical citation into a narrative. Um, they will think of this as well. This is what religious people do. You know, they they they, they quote the Bible. They they cite scripture, um, and it's as if the citation of of scripture or biblical reference is sort of decoration. Um, and so it's just, you know, one expects Turner is a religious person, so he's going to cite the Bible, he's going to refer to scripture. Um, and that's really where it's left. Um, what I wanted to do by examining it as minutely as possible, by examining the, 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 the citation, the structure of citation, that was occurring in the course of the narrative, um, where it was from, uh, what, uh, theo- what theology is manifest in the actual citations or biblical or scriptural references used, I wanted to understand Turner's own theology, his own um, uh, way of thinking as a person of faith. And at least to my satisfaction, this is not simply a kind of a religious autodidact who's sprinkling 
scriptural citations into a narrative. This is someone with a much more intellectually developed sense of how uh, scripture, in particular the New Testament, and in particular within the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of Luke and uh, the Book of Revelation, uh, how these become um, uh, means uh, to not simply to tell a story, but to reveal a series of meanings in a life. And so this is what Turner does. Through direct and indirect citation of Luke, he tells a story of himself that can actually only be told from Luke, because the arc that Turner tells of uh, himself as a spiritual person uh, is of a life that begins in infancy that uh, consists of a dawning realization of who he is, uh, who encounters um, um, uh, central events of uh, New Testament Christianity in terms of the uh, a vision of the crucifixion, uh, a vision from Revelation of the second coming, and then a realization that is it is that he himself, who is um, typologically indicated as the person about whom this narrative trajectory, around whom this narrative trajectory is woven. So the, the goal, uh, and this is all in one chapter of the book, uh, the goal of that chapter is simply to ask the reader to, not so much to suspend disbelief, but to, to accompany Turner on this, uh, on this sort of narrative voyage this uh, journey um, that he undertakes, uh, which uh, leads him to the position that he is burdened with the task of the redemption of humanity. This is where he ends up. This is, this is Christ's task uh, in, uh, in Revelation. And it is Turner who is performing this task in his own narrative of himself. Mm -hmm. Well, so and one of the things that I really found especially fascinating and powerful about that chapter and that story that you told was this sort of realization or kind of gradual realization of that role by Turner himself. Mm -hmm. And like you talk about how initially he tried to sort of self-emancipate and then like returned in a sense, realizing that his role was to occupy this, this task through slavery as it were. And you also invoke in it, I think, a really interesting way, uh, Kierkegaard, and in particular, uh, Fear and Drempling, as a way of thinking about the disruptive nature of what what Turner's thought 
represented. And I wonder if you could talk about both of those things, but also talk about them in relation to ways in which the ideas he was expressing might have been threatening uh, in a kind of scriptural or, or theological or ideological sense to the kind of the white establishment that sure. that he was confronting and sort of what they did to try to contain them. Yeah, so the, 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 the narrative that Turner offers in the first half of the pamphlet, uh, as I said, is one of a sort of dawning self-awareness, and it doesn't come easily. Um, he is not, you know, he is not a person who springs fully formed uh, out of, you know, uh, uh, at the outset of the narrative. Um, he describes a kind of artless religiosity in his infancy, a kind of casual uh, religiosity, a casual spirituality that is really pretty shallow. Um, and he describes his first interpretation of the religious experience that he um, um, encounters uh, uh, early in early adulthood. He, he describes, he, he concludes that, 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 that God is uh, offering him, uh, uh, God is offering him some kind of gift. God is kind of offering him uh, is God is making him a promise. God is going to um, uh, shower bounties upon him. He 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 quotes uh, he cites Luke um, um, Luke's injunction to seek the kingdom of heaven, and all things shall be added unto you. And he interprets that as God God is making him a promise, and so he kind of. His, his initial mentality is kind of a bargaining with God, you know. So, so what is his promise? What's going to happen? And he becomes convinced that um, uh, that, 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 that he is, you know, he's, he, there are bounties that he will enjoy. And he, he decides um, um, that the way to realize uh, these promises is to abscond. You know, he's going to abscond um, from his uh, enslavement, and God will look after him. Uh, and so he does abscond, uh, and then he he realizes during the during the, during, during his absence, uh, and this is really kind of the, the first mature spiritual decision he makes um, that um, you don't bargain with God. God has told him to. Uh, seek his kingdom and Turner is not doing that. He is thinking of himself. He's thinking of himself as the recipient of, of, of bounties. Uh, and so he returns um, and uh, that return is the beginning of the most sort of difficult part of Turner's spiritual maturation because, you know, his first understanding uh, has uh, failed him, uh, and so he is. Uh, it is unclear to him at that point. You know, what is the meaning of these experiences? And it's at that moment, really, that I I argue in in the book and the, on the basis of of his uh, narrative and the pamphlet. This is where 
uh, he is confronted with the vision of the crucifixion. Uh, the, the, the vision of the crucifixion is, you know, in, in, in Christian eschatology, you know, a vision of the crucifixion is to encounter the, the single most important event in Christianity. Um, and it steers Turner toward a, a very different sense of himself, the sense of himself that I argue ultimately uh, results in Turner um, uh, typologically identifying himself as uh, the Redeemer return. Um, the issue um, that this analysis, of course, you know, this analysis or this, this, this narrative in the pamphlet is immediately followed. Well, that is the, 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 the narrative arc of Turner's self-realization of Redeemer is immediately followed uh, without pause, without explanation by the events of the rebellion itself. Um, there is uh, this kind of um, very, very abrupt transition um, from Turner's account of himself to the events of the rebellion. Suddenly we're in the rebellion. And so uh, what I confronted as someone trying to make sense of this person and his, uh, how it came about that he manifested his task of redemption in violence, in graphic violence, a massacre, in effect, is, you know, how do these two things comport with each other? And it was to, to try to manage that transition was where I turned to Kierkegaard. Um, Kierkegaard's book, with, as you mentioned, Fear and Trembling, uh, which was written in the early 1840s, um, is kind of essential to me to, to understand this transition because Fear and trembling is about God's demand that Abraham sacrifice Isaac. And Kierkegaard's attempt to explain how it could be that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. Of course, you know, he is, he is let out, he gets, he, he, he is let off the task at the last minute, um, but he is willing, you know, as Kierkegaard says, and he raised the knife. Um, that uh, book, Fear and Trembling, deals with Abraham as a paragon of faith. Um, and it is as a paragon of faith that Abraham confronts and assents to the task that God has given him. Uh, so my argument, which is an argument, you know, by analogy to the Abraham-Isaac story in Fear and Trembling, 
is that Turner, as a man of faith, has been given an impossible task by God, um, and he undertakes it. Uh, he, he does not get uh, relieved of that necessity. God insists that he kill, and he does. So his, his particular motivation is the motivation of faith. It is to realize the kingdom of God on earth by, um, uh, by slaughtering God's enemies. Um, this is, um, I'd like to say two things about this. Um, one is to say that one cannot attribute this motivation to anybody but Turner himself. And in order for Turner to persuade others to accompany him in that task, uh, I argue in the book that Turner has to invent a politics. He has to create a politics of persuasion that will uh, carry his um, comrades along with him. Um, in Kierkegaard's terms, Turner is a knight of faith, um, but there's no indication that one can say that of his comrades. Um, nevertheless, um, and you ask, uh, or how, how is, you know, in what form, in what manner is this uh, threatening to, uh, uh, to white Virginians? Um, um, it's threatening because Turner identifies, in my view, Turner identifies the regime of slaveholding as a profane and as the expression of a profane and wicked social order that has uh, placed itself above God. Um, and it is as such that it is to be attacked um, as a profane and wicked social order. And I, I use the, the terminology of, of counter-sovereignty, that this is an act of counter-sovereignty that is the sovereign, to the sovereignty of the profane, Turner counterposes the sovereignty of God. Um, so it's in that sense, I think, that the the, the kind of the consistency of the religious ideation, um, the action as a mentality of faith, as the expression of a mentality of faith, and the actuality that this is a, a, a threat to, a blow against, a profane social order, um, essentially in the name of uh, the in the name of achieving the king God's kingdom on earth. That's sort of how the whole thing fits together. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought I, mean, I, th I found it really powerful the way that you pointed to like Turner's last statement being, you know, Christ was crucified, wasn't he? Right. Right, right. And what that meant in the context of, you know, 
what was being presented to him and ultimately what happened to him. Yes. Um, well, so I was wondering, um, the, the second half of your book deals with this sort of political reaction to the Nat Turner rebellion. And obviously we can't get into all of the details of that. We, we, we just wouldn't have time, but I, I mean, I wonder if you could talk briefly about the sort of immediate political repercussions and sort of how the Nat Turner rebellion informed the way the kind of politics of Virginia at that point in time dealt with the question of slave ownership and what to do with slaves and representation. Right. Um, I guess it's, it should be, you know, quite, quite understandable to us that the, the event of the rebellion uh, at its occurrence is a, uh, a tremendous shock to um, slaveholding Virginia uh, and indeed a, a, a shock to uh, the slaveholding South in general. Um, the particulars of the political response to the rebellion um, really can be explained if one if one situates the rebellion uh, in between two, you know, dramatic and important political events, political and con- political events in, in, in antebellum Virginia, um, the first, which which comes before the rebellion, um, and I'm not saying that these three, you know, it, well, I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. But anyway, the first, which comes before the um, Rebellion is the Virginia Constitutional Convention of 1829 through 1830. Uh, slaveholding districts of Virginia, the East, uh, those areas politically, which are dominant in the state, are coming uh, under, um, have been coming under uh, uh, assault, political uh, assault, from the newer, new, more, newer inhabited uh, western section of the state, uh, which is now, of course, the separate state of West Virginia. Um, and the two sections of Virginia have uh, very different uh, populations and very different economies. Uh, the east, as I said, is slaveholding, um, uh, cash cropping agriculture. The west, uh, pastoral farming, subsistence farming, uh, and perhaps m- more importantly, very, very uh, few uh, areas of slaveholding within the Western uh, section of the state. Um, the two sections of the state, they're two different, they're two distinct economies, have very different interests. Uh, and the West, the, new, the, more, uh, the newly settled West, 
is increasingly resentful of the degree of political control that the slaveholding East maintains over state government. And so it seeks, um, virtually from the beginning of the century, it seeks um, redress in the form of a reconfiguration of the mode of representation and of the suffrage. Um, and ultimately, the, you know, the, ultimately the, the West finally is able to, to force a constitutional convention and the two sides fight it out at the constitutional convention. And during the course of that convention, it becomes clear, although nobody is articulating it uh, directly, uh, or at least uh, not as a as a as a as a clear and present uh, and explicit component of the convention's discourse. Nevertheless, it's clear that slavery is um, the issue uh, that is dividing the two sections of Virginia, slaveholding in particular. Now, you know, the West is not the West may be uh, antagonistic to slaveholding. It is it is not. Um, this is not you know, uh, an expression of, uh, of solidarity with slaves. Uh, it is the institution itself that the West despises and wishes to see uh, its power dispersed uh, just as strongly as the East wishes to maintain it. But so the Constitutional, the Constitutional Convention basically, the two sides fight fight their debate over political alteration to a draw with some um, uh, important alterations to the state constitution, but nevertheless um, not the full-fledged reforms that the, the West uh, of the earlier sought. Um, Turner Rebellion occurs in uh, August 1831. Uh, the shock of the rebellion uh, becomes manifest in uh, petitioning from all corners of the state, um, calling into question uh, both the existence of Virginia's free black population and more particularly raising the question whether slavery itself should be gradually uh, abolished within the state. And that issue is debated um, explicitly by the House of Delegates uh, at its next session following the rebellion in December and January, uh, December uh, 1831, January 1832. Um, and again, but much more overtly this time, the, the same split that has been apparent in the state's constitutional convention reappears in the emancipation debate of the House of Delegates. Uh, undertakes, uh, it debates emancipation, uh, for the better part of two weeks. Uh, the uh, debate comes to a kind of chaotic halt, um, and, uh, the, uh, the East, the Eastern, uh, uh, members or the Eastern representatives in the House of Delegates uh, basically say that unless this stops, they will seek to divide the state, and so the debate stops. Um, so the 
you could say that the, the in in terms of white politics, the Turner Rebellion turns a latent division into an explicit uh, fracture. Um, uh, what's particularly interesting about this 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 fracture is that um, what it leads to eventually is a kind of agreement that politics and law are not the appropriate forms for analysis of slavery or slaveholding at all. Uh, the debate turns into a, de a, a the debate in collapsing, the emancipation debate in collapsing, uh, shovels responsibility for analysis of slaveholding and the decision about slaveholding into the arms of political economy in the particular form of um, yet another uh, pamphlet, uh, this one uh, by the uh, by Professor William and Mary Thomas Roderick Dew, um, a, uh, a, a, a professor of political economy, uh, who uh, in the course of his analysis of the situation of uh, slavery in Virginia develops an argument for its, it is slavery that gives Virginia its comparative advantage. Uh, it's, he produces a, a full-scale justification for the continuation of slavery in Virginia. Um, so well, in a sense, this book, um, you could say this book is, is, is sort of about a succession of texts. Because, you know, I, I write about Styron's Confessions. I write about uh, uh, Thomas Ruffin Gray's pamphlet. I write about Thomas Roderick Dew's pamphlet. Um, the, the objective is not to write a social history of the Turner Rebellion. There are now very good social histories of the Turner Rebellion. Uh, in a sense, the, the book is not necessarily, although the Turner Rebellion features very centrally in the book, the book is really not so much about the Turner Rebellion. It's a book about trying to understand Matt Turner as an intellect and then trying to understand the ways in which Turner has been represented as a person historically and finally, trying to understand the ways in which uh, we turn to textual analyses uh, and modes of analysis like politics or law or political economy in order to understand historical events. Mm. Well, so Chris, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect briefly on what you think your work might tell us about how to understand or how we can better understand Turner's own thought 
today and its kind of historical significance in the moment in which he existed? In other words, you know, how does understanding Turner as a person help us better understand the historical moment in which he lived and why he played such a critical and kind of pivotal role? Um, that's a that's a very good question, a very difficult question to um to, uh, to to respond to, um, I think the first thing that I want to say about that, uh, at least in part, in an attempt to answer, is to say that it was important to me to write a book um, that attempted to grapple with how historians, you know, how historians think. I'm grappling with how Turner thinks. I also want to grapple with how I think as a historian and how historians think, or how I think historians think. Um, I call the book a speculative history um, because I wanted to underline that in order to engage in this narrative in order to tell the story that I wanted to tell uh, it was in, it was necessary for me to take uh, a, take some quite I suppose large risks uh, one cannot I cannot say I can understand I can say that I am I believe I understand that kind of better now that when than I did when I started, um, I do so by pressing with great weight upon tiny fragments of empirical detail um, by taking you know words or sequences of words or allusions in his narrative in the pamphlet and teasing teasing them out as far as they can be teased uh, into a uh, the formation of a theology um, and and that is you know that is speculation um, it's constructive speculation I hope but it's speculation but I for me it's important that historians uh, kind of uh, Accept that they are engaged in a risky business, a, a business of interpretation, and that it is, it is um, appropriate to to take risks of that nature, um, as long as one is doing it, um, you know, honestly and uh, with genuine curiosity uh, as one's upper, as one's motive rather than sort of sensation, for example. Um, uh, I didn't predict at the outset of this interest in Matt Turner, uh, I did not predict to myself that I would end up writing about God. Uh, it turned out that I did, but that was as much a surprise to me as it might be to 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 the book's eventual readers. Um, I think that by, you know, by speculating about past events, 
Um, one is engaging in a really important exercise of recognition. That is, one is recognizing that one's interest in the, in the past event is formed in the, the moment, the now, the present of one's own interest in that event. Um, in other words, you know, history is always written in the present. It's written as a, an encounter between the historian writing in the historian's present and what the historian is writing about and what the historian encounters in what the historian is writing about is the, the, uh, the, sort of the, the, the frisson of the historian's own interest, that kind of nagging, uh, what on earth is happening here? Um, that nagging question, what is happening here, is, is not formed in the past, it's formed now. Uh, and what we're doing in writing history is, is responding to our own curiosity about something that has tugged at our sleeve, has, has floated up and uh, asked us to notice it. So that's what I think the, you know, for me at any rate, uh, the, there is no sort of particular analogy between Turner then and us now that I think the book is kind of addressing in any sense at all. Uh, you know, here I might agree, find myself in agreement with, 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 uh, old William Styron, who really, uh, you know, people would say, you're, you're writing about the civil rights movement, aren't you? And he'd say, no, I'm not. You know, his publisher wanted him to draw parallels between, you know, um, you know, Turner and, 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 uh, and the 1967 riots, um, uh, and, and Black Power and Rat Brown and Styron refused to do that. He was never able to articulate successfully what it was he was trying to do in his book. He called it a meditation on history. But he could never explain what he meant by that. He, he says so himself, but he could never, he could never, he never knew what he meant by that. Nevertheless, what he's, what he's saying and what I'm saying is there is a moment, the moment of examination of any past is not, a, that moment is not occurring in the past, it's occurring now. And, what we produce from that examination can only be produced from the perspective we have of it, from where we are sitting or standing now. So in that sense, this is a book about how history is constructed. Mm. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a great conversation. Uh, I commend you on your fantastic book. And I really strongly encourage listeners to check it out because we've really only scratched the surface so far. Thank you so much. I, I have 
really enjoyed talking with you about it. Um, I, I do hope um, that it sparks some interest amongst your listeners. Um, and it's just, uh, uh, it's great to have this, have had this opportunity to, uh, to talk about it with you. How can it be? You can rest everybody, but cruel Stagley, that bad man, oh cruel Stagley. There's the line told Stagley, please don't take my life. I got two little babies and a darling loving wife, that bad man, oh cruel Stanley. What I care about you two little babies and darling loving wife, you done stole my stuff and hat, I'm bound to take your life. That bad man, oh cruel Stanley. Bad man, oh, cruel Stanley. 